Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. So there. Hey, if you value what we do, we could use your support. Uh, visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. Uh, become a monthly sponsor if you can, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, also consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. And here's a great uh, holiday gift idea, folks. Gateway gift cards. The gift cards can be used not only at Gateway Market, but also at Centro, Django, Malo, Zombie Burger, and more. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m., also on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. So let's see. Now, later in the program, we will be talking with author and longtime activist Ted Glick. Uh, Ted began his life as an activist and organizer on April 4th of 1968. And yes, that is the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We will also be talking with uh, rewilding expert Mark Edwards about the COP15 Biodiversity Summit. That's happening in Montreal this very week. And you know, what I often hear is, quote, you know, well, we, we've got to save this Brazilian rainforest plant because it might cure cancer. Mark has a different take on what our priorities ought to be, and I look forward to having that discussion with him. Uh, finally, for our farm and food segment, uh, Kathy Burns joins me for our monthly garden Q&A. Uh, yeah, even in December, if you eat for a living, there is still plenty of gardening stuff to do and especially to plan for. Uh, but first, I would like to welcome Jessica Wiskus to the program. Jessica has become, might I say, an accidental leader in the fight against three CO2 pipelines. She and her family own land very close to one of those pipelines, the Wolf Pipeline. Uh, Jessica, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ed. It's really a pleasure to be here. You know, I, I want to get an update on the CO2 two pipelines and see where this is heading. But first, I, I want to talk about this huge pipeline rupture in Kansas last week. We're talking about the Keystone Pipeline and an estimated 770,000 gallons, and likely it'll, it'll be more when the whole thing is sorted out. But 770,000 gallons spilled into a creek about 150 miles northwest of Kansas City. That is the largest Keystone rupture in the pipeline's history, and also the largest onshore crude oil spill in the last, what, nine years. So, I mean, does this add any layer of concern to people who are maybe on the fence about what to do about carbon dioxide pipelines? Yeah, I would say that this is very relevant to a number of our concerns out here. And first of all, environmental concerns. And we're um, very concerned about the, the quality of water and what could happen if carbon dioxide were to leak from a rupture and create carbonic acid, which is what it does when it mixes with water, which can lead to the leaching of arsenic and other very dangerous yeah. um, substances for our water. But also, I think it tells us a very simple story in that pipelines 
rupture. We know that this happens. And so we cannot continue to look ahead and kind of have blinders on and pretend that, oh, our technology is so superior now, you know, that, that these are not real risks. These are very real risks. And right. they're felt deeply by so many of my neighbors around here who, who love this land, who have cared for this land for generations and are concerned about you know, it being put on the line with these projects. Yeah, I know. I, I just think of, again, there, there, there have been lots of small leaks, and even a small leak, if it's on your land or your river, uh, can be a problem if it's oil. If it's a small leak of CO2, if you live close enough to that, or if it's near a school or your business or your home, it could be deadly. It could be, it could yeah. be literally deadly, as we saw in Satarji, Mississippi, a few years ago. But, you know, I mean, looking at some of these other oil spills, I mean, in 2013, there was that uh, 1.4 million gallon spill in North Dakota. I believe that was on the farm of a family named Johnson, and I believe it pretty much ruined that land. Uh, and there was also in 2010, of course, the Enbridge pipeline spill in Michigan. Uh, that mm-hmm. rupture um, spilled one over one, like 1.1 million gallons into the uh, Kalamazoo River. So this stuff, uh, you know, I, I hate to have to be reminded about this with another spill, but maybe the fact that we do have this incident in Kansas is maybe making people pay a little bit more attention to what the risks might be. Because my sense is, as bad as an oil pipeline spill is, a rupture on a CO2 pipeline could be much, much worse. You're right about that, Ed. Yeah, could be much worse because of the safety concerns that we have about CO2. So CO2 is an asphyxiant, and we know that in concentrations of 15% or more, it can cause loss of consciousness, Mm -hmm. seizures, convulsions, coma, and death in less than one minute. So this is very concerning to us. And I'll just um, highlight something that happened a couple of weeks ago on the docket here. So the docket is where uh, the various uh, parties file their briefs and their opinions about these projects before they go before the Iowa Utilities Board. And a couple of organizations, including the Sierra Club and the Farm Bureau, which is unusual. You don't often see those two organizations on the same ticket here, <laughs> but they both filed. Uh, and also the Office of Consumer Advocate, which is an, an office in Des Moines, which is supposed to stand for, for us, the, the people here. Right. They filed a brief asking that these pipeline companies submit certain basic safety information into the docket so that the Iowa Utilities Board can take this into consideration when they're evaluating the permits. Right. Good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. Right. Basic safety information about their project. And this is what Wolf Carbon Solutions said. They said, quote, the requested information an emergency response plan, a risk assessment, and a discharge plume model should not be required as a condition preceding to the granting of a permit for the construction of their pipeline, end quote. So they want to build this thing before they have an emergency response plan. So most of what happens out here in the rural areas is that there are volunteers with the local fire department and emergency uh, responders. They don't want to file information about what those people could be called upon to, to have to do in the event of a rupture. Yeah. The second thing they don't want to do, they don't want to file a risk assessment, meaning they don't want to show how many people could possibly be affected by this in terms of you know, mortality uh, uh, risk. And the third thing they don't want to file is a discharge plume model. That is a model that would show us where that 
CO2 would likely end up moving to in the case of a rupture. That's very important if your house is beside sure, the pipeline yeah. or a school or a town or, you yeah. know. So I, I mean, it's, almost, it's almost remarkable to me that they don't want to provide that kind of basic information. And what it says to me is that they know that it's of concern. And so oh, they avoid absolutely. it because they don't want to have to lay out what, what's going to happen. So what, what's, the, what's the timeline on this? Where's the utility board on it? I presume they have to sign off or, or object to it at some point. Yeah, thanks for asking. So there's actually going to be a very important meeting tomorrow in Des Moines, uh, a hearing before the Iowa Utilities Board on this question of safety because the pipeline companies are claiming that the state has no right to request this information because it's under the jurisdiction of FEMSA, the federal authority. But in fact, FEMSA does not regulate anything having to do with the siting hmm. of hazardous pipelines. They they can't regulate where these things go. Right. You know, is it in close proximity to a school, for example, which the Wolf Pipeline is? It goes right through a school district. So um, the Iowa, what the question is, is that is to be settled tomorrow is whether or not um, in Iowa there is authority to request this information so that Iowa can control the routing and the siting of. And, this and again, some people listening to this program might uh, this they might be listening after the date of that meeting, in which case we'll. Mm -hmm have an update on it next week for sure. But let me ask you yeah. this, uh, Jessica. Another, another important um, development in the in the spill, the Keystone rupture in Kansas, is that, uh, and I, I'm taking this from a story about it, uh, the, the, uh, the rupture raises questions about whether the company, TransCanada Energy, should keep a federal government permit that has allowed the pressure inside parts of its Keystone system to exceed the typical maximum permitted levels. So they're saying, well, the, the fact that they were allowed to increase the pressure, maybe that has something to do with the rupture. And so now maybe they should not be allowed to do that. That raises questions about currently about the Dakota Access Pipeline, which, you know, shortly after it was given permission to start flowing, what, uh, uh, 700, was it uh, 500,000 barrels a day? They came back mm -hmm. and said, we want to double that. And mm -hmm. the IUB, the utilities board, let them double that. But now the question should be, well, should that be allowed, given what's happened in Kansas? And the question looking forward is, I imagine the same question might be asked about a carbon dioxide pipeline. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know for sure, but it seems logical that they at some point might want to increase the pressure so they could push more CO2 through that line, in which case you would question whether or not what's happened in Kansas might be a precedent for saying, no, you can't do that. Right. I think you make an excellent point. And I think that the larger issue here is the fact that we have really allowed industry to self-regulate. Right. You know, when the industry comes to the table and says, you know, we can do this. We just need to double this or that. We have allowed that go to go forward. And, and what has been shown is that the industry is not capable of self-regulating. Right. We actually do need other regulatory bodies to, to hold the line and to yeah. keep the safety and the future of the people at the forefront of, well, of making these kinds of decisions. Yeah, regulation is bad for business. <laughs> I to say that, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's uh, good for the public interest and the environment and the planet, but it's bad for the bottom line for a big corporation, <laughs> which, of course, all the, all the companies involved in these pipelines are huge corporations. I mean, yes, I, they I mean, are. I mean yeah. the Dakota Access Pipeline, 
the guy behind that is is Kelsey Warren, one of the top 50 most wealthy people in the U.S., so say no more. Now, let me ask you about this, Jessica. Um, one of the uh, one of the arguments that are, that you're seeing come up now in response to the rupture in Kansas is that oh uh, this is from the oil industry's point of view oh no this is bad uh, we could have to have the pipeline could be shut down for as much as two weeks maybe more maybe not till after the new year and that's going to drive up gas prices and you know when they're saying that you know what they're saying is aha we have an opportunity here now to have an excuse to drive up mm-hmm. gas prices and also to push for more uh, extraction of fossil fuels in the future. You know, I, I see them setting themselves up for that argument, and I, I hope there are politicians and other leaders intelligent enough to see through that. <laughs> good luck, Ed. <laughs> well, okay, well, good response. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I see, I, I think that's where that's going, you know? Yeah, I think we all see it. I think we all see it. It's just that one gets tired of hearing the same story over and over again and waiting for the actual voices of people, you know, to come to the fore, to come to the top and say, you know, we have this concern about our families, about our planet, about our future. We all know this is a climate emergency. We must, we must take action here. And um, we just have to, we have to continue to get those voices out because we know what the status quo will be. It's a climate emergency. It's also an emergency in terms of the threat to public health, to our water, uh, the destruction to the land. Uh, you know, I, I've, I was talking with um, with Doug Fuller. He's a farmer here in Polk County, and uh, he wrote a very powerful statement. Uh, I want to share it with you, Jessica. Uh, mm-hmm. He wrote, uh, the Navigator CO2 pipeline is planning to cross our farm. My memory is too fresh as to the Dakota Access pipeline coming across our farm just a few years ago. That land will never be the same. The right-of-way yields less than half especially in a dry year. The Navigator Pipeline will most likely have the same effect. Uh, the way pipelines are built today is like raping the land. The soil profile is never the same, and the compaction created will never improve, as it is too deep for frost to have any effect. Also to be considered is the danger CO2 presents if a leak or failure occurs. The CO2 spreads very quickly and settles in low areas, replacing breathable air, and people can die in a matter of minutes. As you have pointed out. Yeah, no, that's a powerful, powerful letter. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that it speaks to something that is happening here out in Iowa, (laughs) in the rural areas of Iowa, is that we are each revisiting those values that we hold very, very dear. And those values are about things that are beyond just the individual. It's about the land, it's about the ecosystem, the structure of the soil, it's about the generations that will come after us that are too dependent upon, you know, the productivity and the fertility of this great land that we have here. And it's about our care for our neighbors and those who live beside us and their vulnerability to the safety risks that are posed by these pipelines. We. We see these projects as being very short-sighted. We see them as being driven just by the almighty dollar. And yet the landowners have so much strength. It is just incredibly moving. When you go to some of these meetings with all of the neighbors, we, we can set our differences aside. We come together. We're standing 
up for values that we all share that are so deeply held. And that's why I think we have the strength to defeat these particular projects yeah. because so many people are standing together, finding their voices. Yep. And, and, not, and speaking out. And again, not just here in the upper Midwest, all over the country. I mean, look at look at the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Yeah. Uh, you know, Senator Joe Manchin thought he had a had an agreement from Democratic leadership to um, to uh, include a side deal on the Defense Authorization Act that would have um, basically weakened environmental laws and and further entrenched the the uh, in, uh, further ensured that the Mountain Valley Pipeline was going to go through. Well, that failed. There were 750 organizations nationally that sent a, sent a letter to the uh, leader of the House and Senate and got it defeated. And there were even Republicans who came on board in opposition to it. So, you know, what you're doing and what people like Doug are doing, uh, what people are doing all over the country can and does make a difference. So, Jessica, thank you uh, so much for your effort and for taking the time to come on and talk with us. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Folks, we've been talking with Jessica Wiskus, and when we come back from a short break, uh, Ted Glick is going to join us. He's a longtime activist who has recently written two books, one called Burglar for Peace, the other 25th Century Revolution. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. back to the Fallon Forum. At a time when big corporations control most of the media, the niche that we provide here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum website, uh, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, owner Mark Clipsham says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy efficient methods you can afford and the, great, the greenest longest lasting materials available. That's architecture by synthesis. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the conveniency and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake, familypsychiatry.com. So this has got to be one of the best names of a book I've heard in a while, Burglar for Peace. It's about how Catholics in the 1960s felt that their faith was calling them to work for peace and justice, and that calling mobilized many to oppose the Vietnam War. Uh, Ted Glick writes about his, quote, evolution from a typical 
white, middle-class American teenager to an anti-war, nonviolent draft resistor. Ted, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate being on your program. Yeah, so you, you um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, you got involved the very day that Martin Luther King was assassinated on, in April of 1968. So you've been at this for a long time. About 40, 54 years. Yep, it is a long time. Wow. And you haven't quit yet. That's good because I think the world needs you and others like you now more than ever. But what in, um, what in, tell us a little bit about, I know you, I want to talk about the second book you've written recently as well, but tell us a bit about Burglar for Peace. Yeah, now you got kind of the basics. You know, the, the, I was part of what was called the Catholic left, which was led by priests uh, and nuns. Uh, and over time, it became less and less just Catholics and more and more all kinds of people, including people who weren't religious at all but who liked the types of actions that we were organizing. The, what we were doing was uh, we were going into draft boards uh, in the middle. Well, actually, not in the middle of the night at first. And, uh, at first, people were going into draft boards in the daytime and taking uh, the files from the selective service offices of young men who were about to be drafted and sent to Vietnam and taking them outside and putting homemade napalm on them to burn them. Uh, as a first a symbolic act um, to try to stop this terrible war that was going on wow. over over time. That definitely is a burglary. Yeah, yeah they, they, <laughs> we, we definitely were burglars. We were. We were. Uh, I, have a, I have another occupation uh, in the future if I ever need it. But um, so uh, over time, what developed was the actions happened uh, at night. We went in and removed thousands and thousands of draft files in some cases, would take them somewhere and the next day burn them, have a, a, a file burning party. Sometimes we would take the files, uh, take into the, the building a, a, um, like a little kiddie swimming pool with disappearing ink that we'd put disappearing ink into water with the files and uh, they would be uh, rendered inoperable that way. And there were potentially maybe a million of these files that were in some way destroyed, disrupted, cut cut with the scissors, et cetera, over the course of the uh, three and a half years that this particular wing of the wow. Vietnam peace movement was operating. And um, uh, so, you know, there were trials, big trials over the course of these years. I was part of two of them. People went to prison. Um, I spent about 11 months in prison. Some people spent as long as... Uh, maybe like three and a half, four years in some cases. Um, wow. that, was, that was the reality of that time. The war uh -huh. was just so terrible, so destructive, um, that many people were willing to do things they ordinarily would never do, which is certainly true for me in terms of these actions. And to what extent, um, to what so, extent, to what extent would you say that the activity, that activity and other activity in opposition to the Vietnam War helped uh, change the American public's perspective on it and led to it's being ended. I think this particular wing of the peace movement was really very important. The fact that it was Catholic priests and Catholic nuns who were willing to take these risks, willing to openly say that they did this and explain why they did it. Uh, Dan Berrigan and Phil Berrigan in particular were two of the most prominent and two of the most effective spokespeople as to why it was necessary to take this kind of an action from the 
Christian Catholic uh, perspective that they, you know, had grown up in right. and were grounded in. So I think it had a very big political impact. I really do. So to what to what extent was that was the assassination of Martin Luther King pivotal in your evolution from a, a typical white middle class American guy to the the activist that you became? I, it was totally pivotal. I mean, I, I well, you know before he was killed, I was moving in the direction of, you know, wanting to do something about the war, wanting to do something about uh, racial injustice, racism. The civil rights movement was very much you know, very, very active in the South and elsewhere during the, those years when I was growing up. Uh, but and I, I had heard Dr. King speak twice in person and was certainly following him. And uh, his being killed is what uh, galvanized me into action. It's, it was definitely a case of where, you know, one person goes down. It certainly uh, led to me and I'm sure many others stepping up as a yeah. result. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what got me on this road that I've been on ever since of, of activism for a positive social change. And a lot of your work on this road has involved opposition to the uh, climate crisis and the reality that uh, we are largely ignoring to our peril this uh, this um, not not just future crisis but one that is already beginning to hit hard and in very severe ways all over the world that's been a big part of your work if I'm not mistaken yeah that began in 2003 the impetus there was something I guess kind of similar. There was a, a, a major a heat wave in Western Europe in the, the late summer of 2003. And at the time, the re initial reports were that maybe 30 to 40,000 people uh, died. Uh, later reports um, have said it was as, perhaps as many as 70,000 people who died from this uh, European, Western European heat wave. And, you know, it was all over the news, obviously, and I'm thinking, what? How could this be? So I uh, read, I mean, I knew about the issue of global warming, but this was like way beyond, you know, a, a warming up, up of the temperature, to say the least. So I uh, took the time to study. I read several books um, on this issue, and I came to realize that Things were worse and much further along than I thought they were, and so I made a very conscious decision uh, towards the end of uh, that year, 2003, that I had to basically change my life and get more actively involved in whatever way I could on this issue, which eventually led to my, you know, becoming a full-time uh, activist on the issue. I was fortunate to find a, a job that paid me a living wage um, beginning about 2006. Uh, I worked with the Chesapeake Climate Action Network for nine and a half years and then was able to retire at the age of 66, after which I wrote these two books. Yeah. So that's how it all evolved. Yeah. And and your uh, your climate work uh, led you to write the second book, The uh, 21st Century Revolution. Yes, it did. You know, I, I wrote this first book, uh, Burglar for Peace, uh, over a uh, you know, year or two after I retired, it took then several years before that book was, where I found the publisher and it finally came out. So in the meantime, you know, I uh, actually the, the impetus for the, the second book, believe it or not, was my reading the Bible, reading my father's Bible. Huh. Uh, I, I was raised in the church. I actually wasn't raised Catholic. I was raised in the Protestant church, the Church of the Brethren. Hmm. Um, right. 
and um, had been around, you know, the church. My, my father was a minister, etc., for much of my upbringing, but I was never able really to read the Bible very much. I was starting on it and just, I'd get bored. It just didn't seem relevant at all <laughs> to my life. But um, I read this, I read my father's Bible about a year after he died uh, in 19, you know, in uh, 20, um, 2015, he died. And um, I, I read, I, just, I found this Bible of his that my mom had given to him full of like underlinings, little pieces of paper with notes, et cetera. It was obvious that he read it a great deal. So I read that over about six months. And, you know, I had mixed feelings about all the things I read, et cetera. Uh, but the, over, the, the big thing that I came away from was, so here's this book about how for thousands of years people have been trying to you know, basically change the world to, to live uh, lives that are about love and justice and caring for other people, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself, etc. cetera. Uh, and look at the state of the world, right? Look at the state of the world. What What is it uh, about organized religion as well as about all these efforts that have been going on for a couple hundred years, kind of more secular efforts to kind of change the world, you know, make a revolution, et cetera. They haven't exactly done so well either. So that's that's what got me uh, going on what I called my long-term project at the time, to really try to get at the root. Uh, is there something, what's, what's missing basically? And um, that's, and I came up with, uh, uh, the, frankly, the, the answer that I came up with, there's there really a lot involved here it's not just one thing by any means but the thing that i came up with is that what we have not had uh, either in the case of organized religion or organized you know revolutionary efforts or socialist efforts or radical efforts whatever you want to call them um th there's got to be within the organizations that say they are about a new world um, a much more very conscious uh, effort to have a kind of a culture, an internal culture, a way of operating, a way of working together, a way of working with other people um, that really uh, matches what it is we say we are about, the kind of world that we want. Um, and um, and that that basically is, is, in some ways, is kind of simple. Uh, I, I definitely go into it a lot more in, in this book in terms of right. what I mean by all of that and, and kind of speak about other aspects of social change too so one thing ted the uh yeah. you know you mentioned um you, you mentioned reading the bible stories from 2000 plus years ago and it, seemingly that, that you know not, not much has changed i and i guess i would argue against that it, it does seem to me that we've had some pretty significant progress unfortunately at the same time that we've seen progress for example in human rights and in in, in in women's rights uh in in the way we you know treat the environment to some extent. We've seen a lot of progress, and yet there's been, because of our advancing technology, we've found new and creative ways of oppressing the planet, and in some, in some cases, oppressing each other. Uh, so to me, it's not like there isn't progress. It's just like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fighting with this, uh, this also this, this escalating capacity for doing even greater levels of damage. And that, um, that, to me, is part of the problem, is how do we rein in that new ability to do really horrific stuff. Mm -hmm. certainly... Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm not saying that there's been no progress at all. I mean, you're right. But 
but that it, it's like here here we are i mean we literally are facing the potentiality of human societies and and, and, and ecosystems unraveling it's already happening mm -hmm. in various ways because of the kind of the corporatization of the world right um that that is what we are in the midst of and um you know the climate crisis it's just it's just so uh, serious in terms of the potential for uh, just the devastation of uh, of human societies and ecosystems worldwide that's that's what we're facing that so that that's that's more what i mean not that there's been no progress at all i mean you're right i mean certainly in terms of women's well, rights and, and one justice and so on and one example of progress in terms of uh, climate change is uh, close to home for you and that's the uh, the defeat for now and it looks pretty positive the, the uh, defeat of the mountain valley pipeline that's a, yeah. that's that's inspiring to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, that's a big that's an important victory. Uh, the defeat of Joe Manchin's continual efforts to try to uh, just make things easier for the fossil fuel industry at such a like, yeah. you know, terrible time in terms of what they're doing to the planet. You know, uh, yes, um, he is uh, he's being defeated. Um, and the movement, you know, the, 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 the thing that's, you know, uh, really so important about the, this, this particular victory that we've had so far it's not a final victory but there's been some great uh, victories along the way here in the fight against not just the mvp but other pipelines too um is that uh we have this movement in this country and in this world and it's not going away uh, and i see signs that it's uh, growing stronger and growing deeper the connections kind of the consciousness uh, of people as a whole across all kinds of movements all kinds of sectors of society it's much broader um, that, than it has been, certainly, than, yeah. in, than any time in the 19 years that I've been doing this and, kind of work. And that is definitely so that, encouraging. Hopeful. Yeah. That is hopeful. Now, one, one thing, one, a counterpoint to that, of course, you mentioned one of the reasons you wrote 21st Century Revolution was to challenge the, and I think I'm quoting this, rise of a neo-fascist threat in the USA and yeah. elsewhere. And so even yeah. as we see those uh, swelling movements of democracy, we see this rising threat of neo-fascism. And uh, let me ask specifically, we have just a minute left or so here, about the, the U.S. Do you see the risk of fascism as a, re, uh, as a real uh, possibility here in the U.S.? Yes, I do. I think it is a possibility. Uh, I, um, I, I, uh, I think that um, it certainly can be defeated. Uh, I don't think it's in any way a foregone conclusion. Um, I actually do think that the polarization that's happening could end up becoming a positive thing, even though even though it's really difficult for us living in it right now. Because mm -hmm. I think more and more people are going to be seeing, hey, you know, we have to go another way. Yeah. And I do I do think I do think most people, most Americans, um, don't want what Trump um, and his MAGA followers want. Most yeah. of, you know most people don't want that. Um, so uh, we just have to keep it up. The next election might say volumes about that. <laughs> Ted, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Uh, Ted, uh, if you want, if people want to learn more about or purchase copies of your book, uh, Burglar for Peace or 21st Century Revolution, where do they go to learn more? Uh, the easiest thing is just to go to my website, which is myname.com, tedglick.com. Ted and, and G-L-I-C-K.com. Okay. Yeah, it, it's right there, right right at the homepage, and All you right. can connect me through, contact with me through that Great. also. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Folks, this is Ed Fallon. we got to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about COPE15, the Biodiversity Summit. 
with Mark Edwards, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Remember, folks, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. So the work of the COPE 27 Climate Summit continues... Uh, this week, in fact, through the uh, COP15 Biodiversity Summit. Uh, that's happening up in Montreal, Canada. And a driving concern be behind COP15 is just how the loss of biodiversity affects humans. You know, you hear people say, you know, quote, yeah, if we lose this particular plant in the Brazilian rainforest, we might squander finding a cure to cancer. And sure, that's important, but with me is Mark Edwards. An uh, environmentalist here in Iowa, also a rewilding advocate. And Mark might have a bit of a broader perspective on that topic. Mark, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ed. Um, yeah, I've been uh, interested in the climate discussion, and uh, that's kind of come up even in the last few years. But I've been interested more in rewilding for 40 years. And what the rewilding aspect of related to climate is that we're learning you mentioned the biodiversity uh, conference in montreal and so that's uh, a big step for the climate discussion because it's moving away or including with climate uh, the ecology and ecology is kind of a to me the biggest scientific discovery of the 20th century because it's about <laughs> our relationships to place and so ecology, the foundation is the more diversity, the healthier the ecosystem, the healthier the ecosystem, the healthier the individuals in the ecosystem. Now, ecology may be a big discovery for the 20th century, but it's, some, it's, a, it's a truth that's been known to indigenous peoples around the world for, for millennia. Absolutely. Maybe absolutely. Just, yeah. <laughs> Good, good point. Because, yeah. and, and we have a lot to learn there, but, you know, also uh, the indigenous uh, people are also moving into the f this future that all of us are going into that we've never been before. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. Sure, yeah. Never in human history have we seen anything like this. Uh, in, not, in, in, plan in planetary history, there's never been an extinction experience that was caused by another life form. 
Yeah, and I think that's the other thing. We, when we make it a directness like the, the humans have caused this problem, you know, we alone can't cause the, cause the problem. The problem is also the loss of species and the loss of habitat and the loss of uh, our relationships to place. Right, but, but, so that, like, but those things happen because of things we do, correct? Yeah, yeah. In a way, uh, it's. I think. It's, but people have been doing uh, living here for thousands of years and never had the effect that we're right. talking now. So we can't say that humans are the problem. We can say the way that some humans think are the problem. Well, how, the and way something, the way some humans think and live. Yes, and yeah, and that's why you mentioned indigenous people because we we turn back into our past and look and say, well, wait, you know, it didn't wasn't always like this. <laughs> So, you so, know, when we started burning fossil fuels, sure. uh, you know, so, things really changed. So what is the, 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 the uh, quote that I shared with you earlier? And I've heard variations on that quote almost verbatim from, you know, several times over the years. Uh, if we lose this particular plant in the Brazilian rainforest, we might squander finding the cure for cancer. What's wrong with that statement? Well, it's from the human-only perspective. And let's, let's take that perspective and apply it to where we live here in Iowa and in Iowa, the prairie was the dominant ecosystem, and it had more biodiversity, they say, than the Amazon rainforest. Mm. And we got rid of 99.9% .9 of that here. So think of all the opportunities we lost here. I mean, it's nice to talk about something somewhere else, but I like to talk about where I live. So think of what we lost here in that yeah. process. And is, uh, there are some efforts to restore that that earlier diversity of the Midwest uh, I mean, one, one, one we have here close to home is the uh, Prairie Reserve uh, at, coincidentally, Prairie City. It's not, it's not named after Prairie City <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> right. But it is, what, 8,000 acres of uh, restored prairie that is now home to, I don't know, 40, 50 buffalo and a bunch of elk and a bunch of oh, other wildlife. How, how, is, how is that uh, working in terms of helping to rewild areas that, that had come under the plow, that had come under cultivation? Right. Well, that, that's a nice way of talking about because I have spent 30 years in the Department of Natural Resources and we have these parks and we have all these little pieces around of which that Neil Smith Buffalo Ranch is, is just another little piece. But there's no connectivity. Every place that we have is losing biodiversity. No place is, is maintaining biological what do you diversity. Mean by, what do you mean by connectivity? By connectivity means that the flow of the genetic material can't move off those little reservations. Well, <laughs> that, so that, we, that we draw artificial lines on the map and well, say, you know, this will will keep and that we won't. Well, that did happen a few years ago. We had a heck of a snowstorm and it uh, it drifted and and uh, wrote, went up to the top of the fence and some of those buffalo just stepped right on over and kept on going. So <laughs> well, they yeah. they established their own connectivity. That, that's right, and, and things will, but, you know, think of that we're talking about in Iowa, it's soil. We're living off the carcass still of that prairie. So that prairie mm -hmm. died, and we're living off that soil, and we've lost, what, half the soil in the first 100 years, and there's discussion of losing the second half in 50 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of uh, health of that soil, how does that migrate? Do trees migrate? Do they, are they going to blow in the snow across the fence? You no. see what I mean? Things yeah. don't move. Everything doesn't move the same. Yeah. So, you know, that's why connectivity is so essential. Yeah. I, I, Iowa's soil has migrated quite effectively down to the Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> where it's, well, where it's right. doing a lot of damage, you know. That's, that's right. It's kind of moving south, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's true. I mean, and I don't want to downplay the importance of these uh, places because those critical cores from what I saw in my history of working with the public lands is we continue to develop 
the public cores without putting buffers around them and then worrying about connecting in corridors. And that's that's essential because those isolated pieces can't maintain themselves. Right. They have to be connected to the rest of the world. Right. So, so what, what about the, uh, I'm looking at the, um, the uh, goals of the uh, COP15 Biodiversity Conference. And one of them is to protect 30% of the earth. And that by that, they mean both land and sea by 2030. They're calling it the 30 by 30 initiative. And I'm, I'm trying to understand exactly what does that mean to protect? Yeah. What does that, uh, what does me, that mean? Me too. <laughs> well, I mean, because, they're, they're, uh, they're talking about it, but, you know, I... Right, and, and they're talking about in terms of money and funding and, and trying to get all these people and all these things to work together. And that's why I keep trying to bring it back to local and to where I live and to understand... You know, how do we do 30-30 where we live? So in my mm. yard, you know, I've tried to quit mowing. I, I leave the <laughs> leaves. I, I, you know, I let my garden uh, expand every year. Uh, you know, those are, the, those are the kind of levels that we have to understand that in is our personal relationship to those places. And then we can think big. So you can talk big forever, just like they've been talking big about climate change. But all we keep talking about is, you know, the crash coming. And so I think it's great that we're now talking about biodiversity and getting back to how do we do that here in Iowa where we've developed 98% of the state. We have the states covered in two annual species. Right. There's no biodiversity two out there. Two annual species that are very, very genetically modified. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and think of what all that requires, the petroleum, the pesticides, the herbicides, the fertilizer, all that to maintain that thing where nothing else is living in that. And as, as you mentioned earlier, too, the the, uh, the loss of topsoil. I had a very interesting guest on my program a while back. Uh, this has been a few years now. Uh, someone who um, who did not want to be named. It was an anonymous guest. It was a, a, a person who worked at Pioneer Hybrid. And they would go out into the fields, and I can't remember what exactly their job was, but what struck them about their experience in the fields, so they, they would be dressed as in with a biohazard suit, essentially. <laughs> they would go out there, and they would see nothing. You would see, they were, they were working on soybeans, only soybeans. Yeah. There, there, was, yeah. there was not a single insect out there. There was not a single renegade weed or plant anywhere. It was just soybeans. It was about, it was, the, it was taking... Um, monoculture to the extreme of excluding every other life form and how can that be good how can that be good right and, and that's why we're talking about the corridors and in your iowa's is like that cornfield we sit between the places that are left like the ozark plateau and the driftless area and the lust hills and that missouri river watershed and how are things going to move across those cornfields i mean how is that even possible so you know think of that i just keep moving the scale up or down to better understand that picture of what we're doing out there so yeah. you know that's what our group has been working on is we call it heartland rewilding or the mississippi river watershed you know, because people aren't talking about that. We're talking about the world, you know, and oceans and all these things that we don't have direct relationship to that here. Right. So why aren't we talking about that 30-30 here? What do we got? A little over 1% that the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, even manages for some kind of health in the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, it's just absurd yeah. that, that we have these great grandiose talks about these big pictures but where I live, I don't see that. I see it going downhill. Yeah. So, what, To what extent, I mean, I think it's great when individuals uh, stop mowing their lawns in your case, or in our case, uh, 
grow as much food as possible and have bees. But um, <laughs> to, to what extent can we convince our city and county officials that maybe uh, merely adding to the tax base through another subdivision built on, you know, built in a woodland that uh, that is now again no longer going to provide that that uh, that wild space, that connectivity. Uh, how do we convince them that that's not a good idea? That it's better to leave that as wildness. And I mean, are, are we having any success with that? Well, I'm sad to say I don't, I don't see it. I mean, it, it, that's what's so exciting about this discussion about the biodiversity for me. I mean, this is the first time it's become much more of a public uh, discussion. And thank you for focusing on that, you know, because we don't in Iowa. We're still fighting about trying to get more public land. Do we have a cap on not buying public land. I know people that want to sell their land under the cost to the state and the state won't buy it. You know, it's unplowed ground. It's the last little remnant left. Right. I just talked to him today. So, you, you know, and I'm trying not to be critical. You want to know how we're going to change this. Well, I think, you know, we have a group called BeWildRewild.org website, and we're talking about our relationship to place, which takes us back to Native people. And so, you know, that's where our problem lies. Government isn't going to fix this. You know, individuals in the yard are going to fix this. We need some kind of right. worldview that we can bring back to where we live and start applying it here. And that's and that's why I think that what's happening in Montreal with the COP15 Biodiversity Summit is really important. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know, it, you know, this is going on this week. We don't know what uh, what the final situation is going to look like, but they, I mean, if they can come to, come to any kind of uh, you know enforceable, serious agreement about protecting 30% of the Earth's surface, that would be that would be a big step forward. Um, I know they also talk about wanting to eliminate the billions of dollars of environmentally harmful subsidies. And gosh, I can think of plenty right here in our state <laughs> and nationally. Yeah. And also, maybe the easiest one of the goals I've read about is reducing the spread of invasive species. I mean, that's not easy, but it's uh, maybe well, it's maybe it's easier. I don't know. It's it's a, well, still a lot of work. Well, good. That, that's a big point. And this is this is one thing that our group has evolved and come to. And this is perfect. So we talk about invasive species and I spent my career 30, 40 years fighting invasive species. And I'm not against restoration, but at the scale that we're at now, the loss that we're looking at and what we need to do is completely the other way. So we did an analysis of Iowa GIS mapping. We found that slopes over 9% and five-year floodplains, which are all economically unviable, and we're paying crop insurance to farm those things. And I say, take that money, take that land, and and let it rewild. If you want to go in and, and plant prairie, that's fine. But at the scale we need to do now, that's what we need. And you know how much that added up to nine million acres. That's mm. one fourth of Iowa we're farming and using. That's absolutely not working. So why can't we just let it rewild? And we're talking about carbon sequestering. Nothing would sequester that carbon any faster yeah. than to do nothing on that land. Well, Things Mark, would come back. And so we get into this discussion about invasive species, and I understand it and, and everything. But again, that's a, a smaller part of needing the biodiversity, whatever the biodiversity is that wants to try and live yeah. here. Mark, that- I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. So we got to run to a break, but I want to have you back on sometime, ideally with somebody from the Iowa Farm Bureau to talk about how they feel about <laughs> uh, taking a quarter of Iowa's farmland and, and rewilding it. I mean, I, I think you can make a strong case for why that's a, that's a logical thing to do, 
they're going to make a strong case as to why it's economically infeasible. And maybe maybe that conversation would be a good one to have. So stay tuned, Mark. I want to, I want to okay. have you back on to have that conversation if you're up for okay. it. Well, thank you for having me on today just sure. to get some of this out. So All thank right. you. Hey, I appreciate it. Mark uh, Edwards, folks, joining us here today in the, in the, uh, in the conversation. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. And when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns and I will host our December Garden Q&A back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program. Speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. And here's a great holiday idea, Gateway Gift Cards. The gift cards can be used not only at Gateway Market, but also at Centro, Django, Malo, Zombie Burger, and more. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns is with me, folks, and we are talking December Garden Q&A. I know people think, December, why do I want to talk about gardening then? Well, if you eat for a living... Well, full time. <laughs> it's year-round planning. It is year-round year yes. year planning. That's why we we teach courses about the year-round planning. And you know, and, and we have a lot of answers. Of course, some of them make sense. We also have questions. For example, mm -hmm. we we've been asking questions to different rabbit work uh, rabbit sites recently about how to attend to baby rabbits in the cold because we have our first uh, clutch of baby rabbits. Litter. Litter. Yeah, probably well, litter, of, probably not clutch. You think of baby chicks, I know. which I'm we have my sometimes too. I'm getting my my Easter animals it's mixed up. Animal yeah. husbandry terms. Confused. Anyway, so yeah, we have we have we have questions about that, and we're getting some very good help. So if we can answer your questions, happy to do it. Yes, we're easy to find. Um, so somebody on one of the social media pages uh, wasn't asking a question, but doing a happy dance. So I just thought I'd comment. She was excited because uh, she had a picture of what arrived in the mail yesterday. It was her. Seed Savers Exchange catalog that's out of Decorah, Iowa. And we've mentioned numerous times on some of the earlier programs uh, that it's time to order seeds now. Yeah. And we got our order in about a week and a half ago, and the full order arrived. Yeah, we need more places like Seed Savers all over the country. I mean, and there are, I mean, but there's, there's none here in Des Moines, for example, but we could use 
in every different growing zone, uh, a, a, you know, some some entity that is saving heirloom seeds because, I mean, like they're running out. We do. Out. We, well, we, 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 we do some, yeah. We do. But not a lot. Right. Um, and not, not with kind of the genetic purity no. that some of these big operations are able to, to do. But they run out of seeds so often that, yeah, we, we think, order your seeds right away. Better yet, start encouraging other entities to start, you know, growing and saving heirloom seeds. And save seeds when you can, when you're growing food. Sure. It doesn't always work. And we have been traditionally saving pepper seeds. We're starting with fresh seeds this year. But the question I saw on the um, forum was was a good question because I like to talk about peppers. What are your favorite peppers to grow? Looking for productive peppers for fresh Eating, mm. I'll start, Ed. My favorites, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> move aside. My favorites are two new ones that we tried last year and this year called Wisconsin Lakes and Golden Treasure. They both get uh, nice, big, blocky fruits, and the Wisconsin Lakes turns a really nice, deep red if you can let it sit yeah. on the vine long enough and the Golden Treasure, as the, the name would imply a beautiful golden yellow orange color, and they are sweet and delicious. Yeah, you know, I, if I can add a third one, I mean, I really oh, like yes. the, I really like the Ocelio thin skin pepper. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a uh, an heirloom from Des Moines, actually. An Italian family on the south side of Des Moines came up with this one. Appropriately, the family's name is Ocelio, um, but it's a little bit hot. But in terms of sweetness, I have to say my two favorites are the Quadrato Astigiaio, a big, blocky Italian pepper. Say it again. It's a Quadrato Astigiaio. Nice. But also the yellow Marconi. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's more of an elongated pepper with a beautiful yellow color and a nice flavor. So I, those are my two favorites. All right. And uh, let us know what your favorites are. Uh, somebody has a lengthy question, but I love it because it, it speaks a lot to what we do. Um, helping other people learn to plan what they're growing in their yards. They're looking for ideas about edible landscapes. She's got a hill off her driveway. She says it's probably just low-growing plants, um, something that a bush, ground cover, something like that. But she wants to grow food in it because she doesn't want to mow it, and she likes to uh, snack on food while she's tending any (laughs) vegetation in her yard. Good idea. (laughs) So we have a few ideas for that. What do you got? Uh, I just think rhubarb is beautiful. As, Don't want to uh, snack on that. It's it, it will eventually <laughs> spread and and cover a yeah. lot of ground and um it you know it doesn't grow a lot of weeds underneath it. It's not a good snacking um, food, no. but it's pretty and you sure can make a lot of good pie and jam with and it. And you won't have to mow around it or weed around it. It pretty much covers its space. It's you pretty know? self uh, self um, shading and and well, self in terms mulching. Of, in terms of nibbling, it just at least for one month of the year. What about strawberries? Mm-hmm. Great Strawberries at, here in Des Moines. The city hall is landscaped, or I like to say foodscaped, with strawberries. Yeah. And they have filled in gorgeous, and they're so good. Uh, you could even do blackberries, I think, sure. if you keep them. Pre- uh, preferably uh, those that aren't thorny. Thornless, thornless are, yeah. are good. Um, those varieties are great. And you can prune it to a minimum height. You're going to be pruning it every year anyway. You've got yeah. to cut it back. And, boy, it's time for us to get on uh, What about, I mean, this is just speculating. What about June berries as a shrub? I mean, June berries can yes. be a tree. But what about a shrub fence? Uh, maybe that wouldn't work for her space. But I think in some cases you could have a nice border mm-hmm. made of June berries. If you, if you prune it so it gets nice and bushy at the bushy bottom, and not you definitely tall. can do that. Maybe, maybe keep it to seven feet tall, seven or eight feet tall. I think she wants something a little small, okay. a little shorter. But you could yeah. do a short one. I mean, that's fine. It would be cute. Think right. of all the pretty berries. 
And then you would you would not give up any to the birds for lack of um, being able to reach up to pick them. We got time for another question or two. One more at least. Um, uh, somebody says that uh, they were gifted a six. Uh, six two-pound bags of Brussels sprouts. That's a great friend. It's a lot. And uh, they wondered about um, preserving them or keeping them. And somebody oh, yeah. answered with, just kind of blanch and freeze them. But we thought we might mention that that, that needs a little more explanation. Yeah, what about three minutes to kind of either steam them or boil them, preferably mm-hmm. steaming them? Uh, ro- or you can steam them above a rolling boil. Yeah, right, they exactly. Ha- it has, the water has to be super hot. And then right into the cold water. You need, it's, I think ice water is best. Yes. A bowl or pan of ice water. Immediately after you bring them out, drain them. Um, yeah, it might even be a good idea them. to pat them dry because, you know, if you get too much moisture in the bag, I find that it's, oh, right. it's harder to work with. That's a very good yeah. point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those are those are the questions. You can do a lot of uh, vegetables that way. We do cabbage. Um, we do uh, – oh, somebody also had a, a cabbage and broccoli. Uh, speaking of those, um, they have an interesting way of having more success with the broccoli. They built this frame. Oh. Um, that is about six feet tall and it's about four feet by four feet wide and it's movable. You can just pick it up oh. and move it and they've got a fine mesh on the outside and guess what it does? It just keeps all the cabbage moths out Good. and the cabbage worms by by uh, <laughs> by default out of the cabbage. Kathy, thanks uh, so much for joining us. You're thanks welcome. for your questions, folks. Uh, thanks to today's guests, Jessica Wiskus, Ted Glick, and Mark Edwards and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Also, thanks to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks again, folks. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.